Pulse Audio Podcast Network. heroes and we are coming at you as the vac pack that's right both kelly and myself are fully fucking vaccinated oh yeah oh 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 it just took emily a little longer than normal well no i just, I just knew someone I what got, i got connected because I, I knew a yeah. pharmacist who had waste doses yeah so that's the only reason i got my well you were also early. working in a hospital while i can work from home so yeah, that is also true. It's fine. But yeah, it, it was funny because I didn't know how to go about getting my vaccine because, yeah, a lot of people were like kind of putting out the 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 vac signal when they're like, oh, this place was, has some waste. Yes. This place has some waste doses, you know, go get it, you know, sign up. And one of my coworkers actually was like, I just signed up on the hy website and hy like a local regional grocery store. Don't worry about it. And it was the easiest thing ever. And I was like. Okay, I feel like I, everyone should have known that you could just do this. Like, yeah. and yeah, it was great. The first time, my first vaccination, my arm was just kind of sore. And then the second time, the day of, I was like headachey and felt really run down. But I, I didn't get super sick like I thought I might. I, I like did. purposely like preemptively canceled plans. People are like, you want to do something? I'm like, no, I super fucking don't. Just in case. Because I might be dying. <laughs> yeah, I got I got super sick. Yeah, but I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like a bit of a superhero now that I'm vaccinated. And actually now uh, Governor Walls in Minnesota is loosening the mask mandate because uh, if you are fully vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks anymore. Which I might continue to do, though, because I just, I, at this point, I almost feel weird. Like, until inside, everyone's not wearing masks. Like, outside, I might not. I already, like, don't outside. Well, like, when I'm in, like, close contact with people. But yeah, now I'm, yeah. I'm not going to worry about it as much. But, yeah, if I'm, like, going into a place, I'll probably still wear my mask. It just, it feels so good to get back to a sense of normal. Because it has been a year since I've licked a doorknob or a toilet seat or tongue-kissed a stranger. And I just want to say, I can't wait till we're back to that kind of closeness <laughs> Kelly is disgusted with me as she should be well part of that is because I just I we've been watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine <gasps> I love that well, show. We, had, we had never watched it before so we're only on like season three but they just we were ta- we were doing one where uh, Jake's dad is in it and yeah they, they were talking about he was putting his testicles on doorknobs yes! <laughs> so when you said that I was like nine nine (laughs) that is one of my favorite fucking shows if you like semi-dumb humor but still like a good show that's the show to watch yeah like it's not only dumb humor which is what i like about it it there's a lot of wordplay there's a lot of repeated jokes there's it's like fast paced it can be clever and then yeah it can just be like cool 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 sweet All right. Well, Kelly, you picked our wine today. I did. I thought it was cute. It's very, it's definitely something I would have bought. And I wish it was sunny because this is sit out on the back of your deck and get drunk in the sun wine. So it's been really nice here in Minnesota for like a day. Um, (laughs) It was a good day. It's it's called Sun Pop and it's a strawberry Moscato. And it says, at Sun Pop Wines, we believe that life should be bright, colorful, and fun. That's easy to accomplish with our deliciously vibrant semi-sweet wines crafted with natural flute, fruit flute, 
Natural fruit flavors that delight the palate. Our strawberry Moscato is refreshing and juicy. Pop open a bottle, pour a glass, and enjoy some fun in the sun. We can't. It's raining. Well, we'll enjoy some fun in this artificial light that we are basking in. (laughs) All right. Well, Kelly, what should we cheers to? Jim and their jammies. Oh yeah, yeah, and we're having a pajama party. Thank God that this week has come to an abrupt and merciful end. It's a long week. Oh, my God. I could easily drink that whole bottle. Oh, my God. It's so good. Oh, my God. I Okay, so this I'm taking this mm-hmm, home. Mm-hmm. No. You can get it at Target. I have to go buy my own <laughs> bottle. Damn it. So I was telling Emily about my story of when mm. I got this because we got it at Target because our Target now has a full liquor store, which is awesome. I was going to say like Target couldn't get any better and then it got it a did. liquor I store. <laughs> um, and so me and my husband were shopping and we like we bought all our groceries and, you know, the, the in Minnesota, if you're like a, a store and you have a liquor store, you have to have like a separate entrance to your liquor store. So I was standing outside like with our bags, like right outside the liquor store and my husband went in because we just don't know. We're like. I don't know if you can bring like all your shopping in. So I just stood yeah. outside and then he was walking around and he came by like, I could see like the Moscatos and I saw it cause it has a really like it's bright colors. And I was like, Ooh, what is that? And so like he rounded the corner and I was like, I'm just like pointing. I'm like, get that. Uh, cause I, I was like, like it was like three cause it was like the third shelf down. And he's like, what are you talking about? So I like stuck my head in the store and I was like that wine right there with I, the stripes. I'm, he's like, what flavor do you want? I'm like, I can't read the flavors. Just pick one. So he, he picked out two. There was three flavors, but he said the third one didn't sound as good. So he got strawberry, and then I think we have tropical that we can have later in the summer. Ooh, hell yeah. No, this is amazing. This is perfect for the summer. Why am I not in an air tube on a lake right now? Right. Or on a beach. Yeah, this is is the sitting out in the sun wine. Mm. We need to have one of those days. You know what we should do? We should go for a hike in the woods and just put this stuff in our water bottles. No one will know. Right. We'll just say we're very uncoordinated. Exactly. Yeah. That's fine. It's it's sane. It's sane. Don't, Don't worry, worry about, about it. it. So Kelly, you are going first. I am. Who are you whining about today? Let me. Let As me. I try not to just read your notes and spoil it for myself. <laughs> All right. So I am covering Susan Laflesh. The Fleesh. That is a horrifying name, and I love it. I never looked up how to Susan the Flesh. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's clearly French, and we all know how me and French get along poorly. Yep, except for French fries. French fries are delicious. Or guillotine. I can pronounce guillotine. Oh my god! Use a little guillotine to cut up your potatoes to make French Maybe fries. That would be cute. Yeah, make that. Make that. Okay, so Susan was born in June of 1865 on the Omaha Reservation in eastern Nebraska. So she's Native American. Okay. Indigenous peoples. I don't know what the actual political correct term right now is. I think it's indigenous people. I usually say indigenous uh, or First Nations. I think First Nations is used more commonly in Canada, though. Canada. Okay. So her parents were culturally Omaha. That's what, what they considered themselves. But they were actually of, like, European and indigenous ancestry. So they, okay. were, they were kind of a mixed bag. And they had both lived... Uh, for periods outside of the reservation and then came back. So her, her, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Sophie Morjo. She yeah. was a uh, Matisse, yep. which was, uh, I think, predominantly like French settlers and First Nations people. And they're their own like ethnic class yeah. or group. But yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the way that they described it in a lot of the stories, like up for her parents, was culturally Omaha, but she was born on the reservation, so. Okay. Um, so her father, Joseph, who was also called Iron Eye, which I love. That's cool. Um, was an educated man. He was educated in St. Louis, Missouri, but then came back to the reservation as a young man, and he was actually adopted by the chief of this particular Omaha nation called Chief Big Elk. And actually became his successor, and then Iron Eye actually became the leader of the Omaha tribe in 1855. So she was kind of a princess. Yeah. But not really. Um, her dad was really big on, like, seeking the help of his people but and encouraging some amount of assimilation. Not, like, complete assimilation, but, you know, some amount, particularly through land allotment. And then that, that caused a lot of friction among his people. Uh, her mother was named Mary Gale, and he she was the daughter of a doctor um, that was a United States Army surgeon. And her mother was Nakoma, who was of Omaha, Otto, Iowa heritage. Like So she was um, first people, but kind of a mix of different tribes. I always forget how many states and cities and everything else in the United States are actually words of indigenous people. Right. So you're talking about Omaha and Iowa and like even um Illinois, the indigenous tribe there were the Illinois. Yep. Which is where they get the Illini for the college football team. Yep. But yeah, I don't know. It's just like we get so used to hearing it and it's like, oh, we're really good at pronouncing indigenous words all the time. It's just right, because we just we're don't used realize to it. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Mary Gale, her mom, also identified as Omaha, um, even though she was kind of of mixed descent. And she understood both French and English, although she refused to speak any other language than Omaha. Okay. That's that's really cool. So she's trilingual. Yeah. That's insane. In French included. Like, right. So she's a witch and I love her. Yeah. I kind of want to be here. Yeah. So Susan was the youngest of four girls in the family. So she had three, three older sisters. And then she also had an older half brother from her father's side. So her father had been married before. And um, had a kid. And had a boy. And then the four girls. Um, as she grew up, Susan learned the traditions of the Omaha people. Um, however, her fa- her parents felt that certain rituals would be detrimental to assimilating into a white world. Mm. So they did not give their youngest daughter an Omaha name. I know. I'm like, did I you give pissed. all of your other children Omaha names and not only not your youngest? That's, like, that's how it was worded. So I'm I thinking, would be so, so pissed. Um, like, I don't have to use it all the time, but I think this is so interesting because it kind of reminds me of um, Zeke Kala Shah, who I covered however many episodes ago, and how they were going to, they were sending indigenous children to these schools, yep. and it was, the whole ideology was, quote, kill the savage, save the man, unquote. That's a right. disgusting and- quote, but it was all about trying to make indigenous children as European as possible. Oh, yeah. yeah. It, but I get into that a little training too. Training them to fulfill subservient roles. It's not like, hey, be 
like assimilate and become a doctor. It's like, hey, assimilate and scrub my toilet. Yeah, it was bad. And the parents knew this, but they also understood like this world is changing. If my kid doesn't get an education from these schools, like they're fucked. And it's interesting. It was I think that a lot of terrible choice. Right. And I think a lot of First Nations people did that, that they started not doing like the naming ceremonies. And then I think a lot of them have kind of brought it back because they're like, you know, you don't have to refer to yourself as that if you don't want to. But it's kind of that, yeah, cultural tradition of you do have that name. So I was, yeah. I was sad when I read that. That is sad. Um, they also prevented her from receiving the traditional tattoos across their forehead. So the Omaha Nation in particular were really big on, you know, facial tattoos. That's so and cool. so they were like, no, you can't do that. Oh, that's a bummer. Right. Uh, she spoke Omaha with her parents, especially her mother. Like I said, her mother would only speak Omaha. Um, but her father and her eldest sister, Suzette, encouraged her to speak English, at least, you know, with her father and the other sister, so that she could be fluent in both languages. Okay, so I'm sorry. Her name is Susan, and she had a sister named Suzette. Suzette. Yep. Okay, so then the, the son's name was definitely Sully. They, I hope they all had Sue like names. I had looked it up and then I didn't There's include Susan, it in my notes. Suzette, Sue, Sully, Sue Yin. Yeah, there you I go. don't know. <laughs> um, luckily, Susan's education began pretty early. There was a mission school on her reservation. Um, it was first run by the Presbyterians and then the Quakers, um, which was after President Ulysses S. Grant um, enacted the peace policy. Which is kind of like they're like, okay, well, you know, we'll help the reservations kind of a thing. Okay. I'm like, okay, you say peace policy, but do you mean peace policy? Right. Um, so the reservation school was a boarding school where Native American children were taught the practices of European Americans to assimilate into white society. So like me and Emily mentioned. Um, so... She did several years at the mission school, and then she actually left the reservation to go to the Elizabeth Institute in Elizabeth, New Jersey, which was uh, a boarding school again. And she went for two and a half years and then returned to the reservation and actually like then taught at the school for a while. She left again to study at the Hampton Institute in Hampton, Virginia for two years um, what was cool about the Hampton, Virginia College um, or the Hampton Institute was that it was a historically black college after the American Civil War, but then they re- it really became a destination for Native American students as well because they were really welcoming to them. We're all excluded from the white schools. We might as well all team up. Right. Um, so at this Hampton Institute, the girls learned housewifery skills, which I think housewifery is probably the best word I've looked at. What did up this you major week. in? Well, I majored in housewifery with a minor in beadwork. I guess we could say housewifery if we wanted Whiffery. to. Wiffery. <laughs> um, so they, they learned, yeah, housewife skills, you know, cooking, cleaning, stuff like that. And the men learned vocational skills, which, you know, were viewed as practical skills which was, you know, promoted in school. Like Emily said, they, they were taught the, like, low wage, you know. You can, yeah. be, you can be a mechanic. You can work on my car, but you have to be like, you have to be like us. But you we're have not to be let subservient you, to yeah, us. Exactly. Because God forbid we're all equal. So while she was at the Hampton Institute, she became romantically involved with a man from the Sioux tribe named Thomas Ik... Oh, this last name. Inkin Ikapi. And she would refer to him affectionately as T.I., Thank God. <laughs> right? 
Um, so they dated for a, a little while, but she ended up breaking up with him before graduating from Hampton. I don't know why. I'm going to go with she wanted to go back to his her reservation, and he probably wanted to go back to his, and maybe she was just like, you know, that's fine. It's We're not good. me. It's you. Right. She was awarded the Demarest Prize, uh, which is given to graduating seniors who receive the highest ex- examination scores during their junior year. So she was like top in her college. Um, female graduates from the Hampton Institute were encouraged to teach or to return to their reservation and become Christian housewives and mothers. Susan was like, you know, so this is this is back in Victorian times. So she, she was like, good sir, I don't think I will do that. Or today, nah. Nah. Nah, man. Nah, brah. She decided to apply to medical school. Damn. So not only was she like, no, I'm not going to go home and be a, like a housewife. She was like, uh, I'm going to do one better and actually go be a doctor. It's like 10 better. I okay. I was joking earlier about the whole like, we don't want you to become doctors. I, know, I love I, that she's I, becoming I a doctor. Um, I sensed it. All of my all of my problem areas were like tingling with the sense right. of medical doctory. And I'm not I'm not trying to say anything bad. Because it was quite common for women to be healers in First Nations, particularly in Omaha Indian society. That was not uncommon at all. But it was very uncommon for a Victorian era woman in the United States to go to medical school. Yeah. This is the late 19th century and only a few medical schools even accepted women at this point. So we're still very early in the women in medicine. Yeah, no one's putting dismembered penises in backpacks just yet. Just yet. Just you yet. gotta wait a few more years. It's fine. So Susan was accepted at the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania because, of course, they have to have a separate school. Yeah, because otherwise the men won't be able to control themselves and they won't be able to focus. Right. And they will become All bad doctors. Those shoulders. Wrong mm. shoulder. Shoulders with tattoos. Let me see that skin. Right. Ooh, let me get no, some ankle ankles. action. Yep. <laughs> ankles. <laughs> um, I don't know. I can see your collarbone. I'm getting very aroused and I cannot focus. Right. So what was cool about the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania was it was one of the few, few medical schools on the East Coast in particular that was education for women. So good on you, Pennsylvania. Um, medical schools obviously... Very expensive, still is, um, and she really couldn't afford it on her own. So she turned to a family friend uh, named Alice Fletcher, and this was actually she. Susan had previously helped nurse Alice back to health because um, she had a flare up of inflammatory rheumatism, and as and so like Susan went and like kind of helped her get back from that. And Alice was an ethnographer, which is a subsection of anthropology that studies like cultures in particular. Okay. So she was, you know, kind of up on everything. And so she knew a lot of like women and women's reform organizations and especially stuff to do with like the other cultures in the United States. So Alice was like, Hey, there's this, um, women's national Indian association and there's one like in Connecticut and like go and apply to them and see if they'll help you with school. Is basically I love that. what Alice told her. I love that Alice is connected. And I love that Susan connected with Alice through like providing her with medical treatment. And now that's helping her go right? to medical school. It all comes for full circle. And this is why you help people so then you can hold it over their head and, and get favors plug later. them for favors. Yes. Why 
Like, I'm not being a good person so I can get into heaven. Some, like, sky cake bullshit. I'm being a good person so I can lord it over everyone and call in favors when I need exactly. it. Exactly. Speaking of which, Kelly, remember that time I was, like, really nice to you and complimented you? I need something. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Um, so, the Women's National Indian Association, I have kind of mixed feelings on, at least. I didn't look too far into them, but as they are in this story, like, they're kind of good because they help her, but... They're also not great because their their whole thing was to civilize Indians and encourage Victorian values of domesticity among Indian women in particular. They sponsored field matrons, uh, which were tasked with teaching the native peoples cleanliness and godliness. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, I was like, I don't like your mission statement. Well, they're doing the whole like save, kill save, the savage, save exactly. the man kind it's of thing. Terrible. Where it's like, hey, we're going to help you but to you be have, more like us. Like, you have to conform to our ideals. Right. It's like... It, you have to follow our God and our, you know... It's straight up like missionary work, though, where it's like, oh, we're going to help you build a hospital because God told us and you need to believe in God or you're going to hell and right. while we're hammering And you can't, you can't use the nails. hospital. Yeah. Yeah, unless yeah. you accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So she wrote to the Connecticut branch of this Women's Indian Association and told them about her desire to help people. Basically, her people in particular, you know, the First Nations people, she wanted to be a physician and, you know, teach them about hygiene as well as curing what already is ailing them. So teaching them about hygiene in particular was really in line with the Victorian, like, virtues of domesticity. Um, and the as I said, the association really like wanted that you know cleanliness and stuff. So they were like, "Yeah, we'll send you to medical school." I I'm imagining she's hearing what they're all about, and she's like, "She's like, I'm just gonna put this okay this little here. this little sentence in there that's gonna yeah, make them go." She, yes, she's her. playing them. Like, there's another version where she says how she really feels. She crossed out all the bitchy parts, and it just came. I want to teach people to wash their hands. Send me to medical school, please. Right. And they're like, that okay. sounds Check. swell. <laughs> right. Um, so not only did they pay for her school expenses, but they paid for her housing, her books, and other supplies. Um, she is considered the first person to receive aid from a professional edu- for professional education in the United States. First person ever to receive aid for professional education. Wow. Because that really wasn't a thing. Did she have to pay back the loans at like insanely high interest rates that she's never going to crawl out of? They did request that she remain single. No, during her time at medical school and and at least for a few years after graduation so she can focus on her practice. (sighs) Yeah. Whatever. You know what? They use that same kind of justification for FGM where it's like, no, no, no. I'm just keeping you chased so you can focus on your studies. It's like... Let women exist. Right. Just let us live. Jesus Christ. Right. <laughs> so at the medical school, she just went and like showed everybody up. Um, you know, she took all the requisite courses, did clinical work alongside students from other colleges, both male and female, which is great. Um, and while attending school, she changed her physical appearance just because she wanted to fit in. So she started dressing like her, you know, white female classmates and started wearing her hair up and on top of her head in a bun, which was like 
super common back what then. They did. You know, so she kind of conformed and I'm sure it made people more comfortable. And I'm sure she was just like, you know what, this is what I have to do to get where I want to go. Well, and you know, there's also, I think something to be said for experimenting with your identity. Oh yeah. And just like how you look, because if she grew up on, you know, the reservation and predominantly in the, was it the Omaha culture? Omaha, yep. Yeah. Well now she's going to school with all these, you know, people who have a very different background than she does. And she, you're right. She's kind of the odd man out, so to speak, but right. I bet it's kind of like, well, this is a place where I can kind of experiment in this aspect of culture and this right. aspect, you know, and yeah, I don't think it's necessarily bad that she yeah, did it. It's, it's like just... when I became a goth in high school, yeah. like I was just having fun with that. In high school too. Yeah. Yeah. So during her second year of medical school, she had to go home um, because many of her family had fallen ill due to the measles outbreak. Oh, uh, Measles is really bad. Get your children vaccinated. Um, it, But it's really bad for adults and children. So a bunch of people on the Omaha reservation were sick. So she went home to care for her family. And then she did go back to schooling. Um, and during the rest of her schooling, she would often write letters back home giving medical advice. Can I just say, okay, so she's going to medical school and then she has to leave for a while to administer actual real world medical treatment to people with measles. Right. How is that not like an elective or like at least half a credit? Right. Like that's Is that a study like, abroad situation? Like she should have gotten credit for that. Like should have clowned as part of her clinicals. Yeah. I I can't tell you how many classes I took in college that had absolutely nothing to do with my major what? and what I do now. But she's actually going and treating people and they're like Cool, come back and you know, start where you left right. off. Like I feel like she should have got at least half a credit for I that agree. shit. Um, write a paper on it and call it an elective. Right. Independent study. Independent study. There you go. Um, so even though she had to go and care for her family during part of it, after three years of study, she was named valedictorian and graduated at the top of her class on March 14th, 1889. So not only did she have to go home to like take care of like her family, she came back and just kicked everybody's ass. Go Susan. It's your birthday party like it's your birthday curing the measles because it's your birthday <laughs> right. um so in june of that same year she applied to work as a government physician at the omaha agency indian indian school you know where she had gone and she was offered the position on, like within a month or two like they were like yes come be our doctor get in here now um before she could go do that though um, she went on a speaking tour um, at the the request of the Indian Association that had you know paid for her medical school. So was, I'm sure it was more of a like voluntold situation. Voluntold, so we love say it. At work. Yep. Um, and her speaking tour was basically to calm white people down and assure them um, that that Native American people benefit from being in white civilization, like. Okay. Hard eye roll. Can we just take two seconds? Okay, so we have this issue of white supremacy. It's so bad. And it's bullshit. That, But then throughout history, we have all these instances where people of color have to like placate our panic responses we have we have like white women calling the cops on black guys walking or like in bird watching in the park right like like it's just another human being we're so fucking anxious about everything and we need everyone else to be like no no, no it's fine shh 
it's okay. Just chill, chill. We're fine. We're non-threatening. God forbid I threaten you and your sensitivity. Like, it's that so should be bad. embarrassing. It is. Like, I, <laughs> I did half of this research and I'm sitting there going, why, why is this my ancestry? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm hopefully not directly related to any of these people. Well, and it's, it's one of those but things like, where God, I think, and it's one of those things. I do not take personal responsibility no. for what other people did in the past. That being said, I can still I want to be. Yeah, I want. I can judge them, but I want to be aware of what happened in the past because one, it helps me understand better what's happening now, but two, also just kind of like better process my own thoughts and feelings. It's like, well, where is right. this coming from? Where's the historical context for this issue? And education is. Awesome. Yeah, no. <laughs> I was going to say something profound. No, I lost educating it. Educating yourself is the best thing you can do. Yeah. So like, I don't know. I guess I, I, I don't have personal guilt over that, but I'm, I'm like, oh, yeah, God no, I don't either. I'm just kind of like, God, why? Yeah. Um, so she did the speaking tour and then she went on, she went, you know, home to the reservation. Um, she did maintain her ties with the Indian association after that, you know, they're a good contact. Well, and I'm sure she kind of had to because they paid for her medical school. But what was cool is, yeah, so she was appointed. So she was a doctor, but she was also appointed the medical missionary to Omaha as well. And what was nice of the association is that then they went on to fund the purchase of her medical instruments and books during her first few years of practicing medicine. So, That's like, cool. good on them. Yeah. I, okay, have you ever had a job? And I know the answer for everyone listening is yes, where they train you like, this is how you're supposed to do it. And then, you know, like a month in, you're like, yeah, but this is how I actually do it. Right. And then you have to like change how you do it when someone important is watching. I am imagining she's in there and she's like doling out expert medical advice, expert medical treatment. And then someone from the you know, women's Indian association or whatever it is comes in to observe. And she's like, and that's why Jesus loves you and right. wants you to wash your hands. Just kind of like a switch. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> like I'm imagining someone walking in the room and she's like, and then Jesus said, be nice. And then the person leaves. Okay. Here's the deal with measles. Jesus wants you to be healthy. Like they're popping in and out. Right, and she's exactly. like going from doctor to Sunday school teacher. <laughs> That should be kind of fun. <laughs> that should be a skit somewhere. Oh I my god, um, history skit. Yes. So she returned. Like I said, she returned to the Omaha Reservation to be a physician, um, and she was responsible for teaching students about hygiene and keeping them healthy. Which valid, right? So because she technically worked like for the schools, she wasn't actually obligated to care for the rest of the Omaha community. She did not have to do that, but she was like, you know, they're my family. They're my tribe i don't know if that's offensive to say but you know they're her community they're her community and I, I think i think tribe is appropriate i think that term is still used and the school was closer to most of the people on the reservation than the actual reservation agency where they would normally have to like go to request medical attention that's fucking so, fucked <laughs> so susan would often find herself caring for the like because if someone comes to you and is sick you're not going to turn them away so well, do they have insurance, Kelly? I don't think does their insurance cover this? Do they have a pre-existing condition like pregnancy? Because if so, fuck get off. the fuck out of here. 
There's a bit in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where uh, one of the characters has a heart attack and they're in the hospital and they find out that they don't have insurance because their dad canceled it when they were like nine years old. I'm not carrying that burden. And the doctor's like, so you don't have insurance. And the person's like, apparently not. Okay, then get out. Like with a sweet, sickly smile. Just get out. (laughs) So she would often work 20-hour work days and was often responsible for work over... Work days? Yeah. Because she was also... She was doing her actual job of caring for the children, and then she would help the community people. And she was often caring for as many as... As many as, if not over 1,200 people at a time. Because she was just helping everyone around her. That is four hours for sleep. And bitch, you know it takes at least 30 minutes to actually fall asleep. That is three and a half hours. And then you got to, no, because then you have to at least count for maybe 30 minutes to get ready. I don't know. Those Victorian dresses were hard to get into. Oh, my God. The office she's treating people out of was only 12 feet by 16 feet, which is about the size of this room, maybe slightly bigger. (laughs) And the, and her office doubled as a community meeting house. So, she was doing all that. She would also often help 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 people with, like things like writing letters and translating official documents from English to Omaha and vice versa, which is very nice of her. So she's a straight up saint, right? Okay. And she was widely trusted in the community. She would often make house calls. And care for patients a lot of other doctors wouldn't touch. Those with tuberculosis, influenza, cholera, dysentery. Like, she was like, no, you are my community and I'm going to help you. She's like Ruth Coco Burks. Yeah. Oh, my God. Except she actually has a medical education. Ruth Coco Burks was just like, I'm willing to be in the same room as gay people. And you guys are being assholes. (laughs) For several years, she would travel the reservations carrying the reservation caring for patients on a government salary of $500 per year, which is about $14,000 in today. So not, not that much money for a doctor. Wait, $14,000 a year. Today's money a A year. year. Yeah. Yeah. In today's money. Yeah. $500 in that money, that, that time. She also got a stipend of 250, which would be $7,000. So she's total making $21,000 she's a like year below the poverty line. Yeah. And she's a doctor. Yeah. Jesus Christ, you guys. She's not making a lot of money. So the $500 a year was her government salary and then the 250 was what the Women's National Indian Association gave her for being a medical missionary. So in December I, of 1892, she actually became really, really sick and was bedridden for quite a while. She was forced to take time off in 1893 to care for her ailing mother and also work on her own health. Yeah, that's what happens when you only get like three and a half hours of sleep every day for however many years. Right. She would actually end up resigning later in that same year to take care of her mother, who was now at this point dying, Aww. and putting, you know, familial obligations before her public work. I get it. That's so sad. My So my mother actually had to do that for her mother at the end of her life. Fortunately for my mother, she was retired by that point, you mm-hmm. know, but like that, that's such a hard thing for that 
role reversal to happen. And then you're dealing with this very intense and emotional situation. But then she's also, it sounds like she's still pretty young. She's working hard. She's sick herself. Right. You know, she's having to give up her own job to take care of her mother while she's dying. She is 20 something. She's like two years, 28. I think. Uh, my my friend actually just uh, recently lost his father. I think he is 36 years old. I'm like, oh, no, that's too young to be losing your parents, yeah, man. Like, I'm I'm 30, and I'm like, nope, I'm, I'm way too young to be dealing right. with that. I don't know how to plan a funeral. Right. So while she was recovering from, like, her mom dying and everything, she met uh, a man named Harry Picotti. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He was a Sioux Indian that was... living on the Omaha reservation. Um, He had been married and divorced before. And so a lot of Susan's friends were kind of leery, leery of it and kind of surprised by the romance in general. Cause I'm sure she had been working so hard that she hadn't had time for romance previously, but they would actually go on and get married that same year. So it was very, very quick romance. Um, But they would go on to be together for quite a while uh, they would can, have, they would have like him. Can yeah, I like, we can okay, like him. Cool, Actually, cool. we can like him a lot. Oh, um, they would go on to have two sons. I'm going to call him Carl, even though that's probably not it. Cause it's C A R Y L. Carol. Carol, Carol can be a boy's name. Um, any name can be, is gender neutral if you're not a pussy about it. Right. So his birth year isn't exactly known, but he was born within like a year or two of them getting married. And then they would also have Pierre, um, who was born about four years after they got married. Um, so she actually went back to get to practicing medicine or continued practicing medicine after the birth of her children. Um, obviously this meant that, you know, by this time the women's, Indian Association isn't probably paying her that stipend. Um, but this means so she was, she probably wasn't even getting a government salary because she wasn't working for the school anymore. So this, you know, very much meant that she was dependent on the support of her husband. And honestly, most husband wouldn't let their wives do that. Let's be honest. This is Victorian era, 18, late 18, late 1900s. So it's 18. No, it's the 1900s because we're in 1890. You said late 1900s. Oh, yeah. That late would be like the 90s. Late 19th century. Okay. Sorry. Is I'm what like, I meant. Kelly, I feel like you're trying to say something, but. I'm not quite you're, there. You're arguing with me and I'm trying to be real nice about it, but you're wrong. Yeah, no, I meant 19th, 19th century. century. Yeah, late 1800s. Yes. So this was a time, you know, like I, we've said before, housewifery was a big thing. Wifery. Um, you know, they're ex- especially after marriage, women are expected to stay home, be full time mothers, you know, take care of the house, not go out and treat people. Yeah. But no, her husband was like, yeah, no, fine, go. You know what? I would hope he knew what he was signing up for, like when he was. When like, she he seems met like her. a very determined she was woman. doing the damn thing. It's not right. like she woke up one day and is like, I'm sick of whiffery. I'm going to be a doctor. Exactly. Um, so she would go on to like, it doesn't really explain if she had like a practice of her own or if she joined a practice, but the practice she was, her practice, we're just going to go with that. She treated both, um, the Omaha nation and white patients in the town of Bancroft and the surrounding communities. Um, and if necessary, 
Susan would actually take her children with her on house calls. Like if she couldn't find a babysitter, she was like, all right, you're coming with me. Don't break anything. I used to go. So my mom. Reminds me of the Mayo brothers. Did they? Oh, that's right. Because they would go with their dad on house calls sometimes. That's right. So when I was growing up, my mom actually worked as a teacher at the preschool I had gone to when I was really little. And part of the benefit of that was she could take me to work with her if I, so like if I had a day off school uh, and she had to work, she would just bring me with her. And I was like, teacher's helper. And all the teachers are knew me because they taught me when I was little. That's cute. Yeah. And so like businesses that are accommodating to families like that are the fucking best. I hope that daycare is still there. I've actually been thinking about taking like a little nostalgia trip back to Illinois That'd be cool. because I just realized I'm like, I just drive there, plug in my GPS, go. I know, I know the town. There's nothing stopping me. I should just go and drive around and look at or all like the places where I grew or up. Something, yeah, know? like, so I, I might go there and just be like, "Hey, all the all those teachers are probably dead now." <laughs> <laughs> I bet that's what if, my if, students if you think had, of me. If you had like one really young teacher, they might just be really old. Yeah, now. yeah, but so, some of my teachers. There was one Miss Pat. She was uh, she was, she was already really old. Yeah, yeah. she was up there. <laughs> So in addition to caring for medical problems, um, Susan was still, you know, educating her community. Like we said, education is key to a lot of things. So she was really big on teaching them about preventative medicine and other like ongoing public health issues. One of which for this time was temperance, which if you don't know what temperance is, temperance is abstinence from alcohol. The exact opposite of us. Who's <laughs> gonna say um, deodorants? Particularly on the Omaha reservation, alcoholism was a serious problem. Actually, her husband was an alcoholic. Yep. Um, and it was fairly well known, actually, that uh, terrible, terrible white people would actually use alcohol to take advantage of the Omaha people while making land deals. Like they would like offer them like a low deal and then they would be like, oh, and I'll throw in, you know, a six pack. That's probably not what it was back then, but that's my, you know, that's what I'm going with. Um, So as the reservation physician and obviously a very prominent member of her community, like people fucking loved her. Yeah, they should. Um, She's a saint. You know, she was well aware of the damage that alcohol caused. And she 100% was like, you know, this is coercion and we need to punish, you know, the people that are doing this in order to help our community, basically. So her dad was still chief at this point. So she kind of like, you know, was like, hey, daddy. Um, and actually her father did implement like a secret police system that um, supported corporal punishment to discipline those who consumed alcohol. Oh, shit. They're getting medieval with it. Yep. Susan would also campaign against alcohol in general, you know, giving lectures and on the virtues of temperance and embracing these coercive efforts, you know to stop people drinking. And yep. she was, you know, a big fan of prohibition and she would actually go on to, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce this right. She lobbied for a bill. That's like the milk, Mickle John bill, the Mickle John bill, M E I K L E J O H N Michael John. I don't know. Something John bill. How, how um, do you take three of the most vanilla names in the English language and make them that hard to pronounce? Right. 
Um, so this bill would outlaw the sale of alcohol to any recipient of allotted land whose property was still held in trust by the government. So basically, like, if the government held your land, which was the truth for a lot of Indians, you couldn't, you couldn't, someone couldn't sell you alcohol for that land. So all of this I take great issue with. That being said, I completely understand why they felt this way because you're right. Alcoholism uh, has been a big problem on reservations. Um, and it's at one point it's like it gets so bad. What like what do you do about right. it? I don't and know. It, about and again, it's not corporal it's, punishment for consuming no. alcohol. I feel like that's a little far. Yeah, no. But for, I get what they're sure. trying to do. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of those issues were brought on oh, by yes. European settlers, Very white people, and then we demonized them for it, and yeah, then we're like, was, "Well, deal with your problems." It was it's, terrible. It's sad. So this bill actually did pass and become law in 1897. Uh, but it was really, really hard to enforce because it's not like there was like a, you know, police officer at every signing of a land, like a land allotment deal. So it, it was there, but it didn't really do much. Do you have to take a breathalyzer before signing any land contracts or exactly? Or you have to have, you have to have like a special ID that says, Oh, I get land from the government so you can't sell me alcohol. But then how do you do that? Because well, then you Indians need an probably, ID that says yeah, it's, that it's, I do not have that in my idea. Like, yeah. Right. Well, and then, like, the person buying the land would have to not offer them out. Like, it would be a whole thing. Yeah. Um. So during this time, Susan was also the chair of the state health committee um, of the Nebraska Federation of Women's Clubs. That's a, sounds like a very specific niche. Yeah. Um, so this was starting, this was in the, you know, the first few years of the 20th century or the 1900s. Oh, like 2021. <laughs> yeah. Today. 2001. <laughs> um, so as chair of this committee, she put in a lot of efforts to now educate like the wider public about health issues. Like she had been, you know, preaching preaching in the medical sense, I guess, like to the Omaha people for quite a while, but this really gave her a seat to expand that influence, particularly in the schools. And she believed that the key to fighting disease was education. That she's like, you know, if we can kind of stop it at the beginning, the healthier our people will be, which is totally true. What's that saying? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Yeah. Also... This woman was born in the wrong time because she was destined for you too. She would she would have been like a Dr. Mike esque figure oh, 100%. on YouTube, like just totally killing it. Granted, they probably needed her a little more back then. Yeah. Um, so during this entire time, actually, from the time she left medical school to now, which has been like twenty years, this whole time she was campaigning for a building of a hospital on her reservation. That's right, because she's just using. The a room that's about this size, which is definitely not big well, enough. And actually, after she resigned, she probably didn't even have that anymore. Oh fuck, man! Yeah, she's just doing house calls and stuff. Right. So they finally built a hospital in 1913, uh, and this was the first privately funded hospital to be built on a reservation. Nice. Um, I mean, like sad, but like good for Susan. <laughs> right. So. Kind of after that time, if you know anything about the early uh, 20th century, um, 
her really big crusade that came to the forefront was against tuberculosis. This was killing hundreds of the Omaha, including it it finally killed her husband, Henry, in 1905. So a weird thing kind of happened when her um, husband died. So clearly her husband had a land allotment. He left about 185 acres of land in South Dakota to her and their two sons. But there were kind of weird issues that came up when they want to claim it. And then, you know, obviously they wanted to sell it. They were like, you know, why we live in Nebraska. Why are we going to go to South Dakota? But that was part of the whole peace treaty. And they gave oh, Indians yeah, it a was, lot of land. It was like a Particularly in the Dakotas thing. because no one wants to live there. Yeah, it's like, here's your crap land. Right. Sorry for the whole of the genocide. Right, exactly. So at the time of her husband's death, the land was still held in trust by the government. And in order to receive money from its sale, his heirs had to prove competency. Not really sure what they considered competency. But because um, his sons or their sons were still too young, they had to have a legal guardian who would prove competency on their behalf. Susan. Please tell me they're not trying to prove that this woman with a medical degree who's been a doctor for like 20 some years is a moron. So Susan had to send letter after letter after letter to the Indian office to get them to recognize her as a competent individual so she could receive her portion of the inheritance. Finally... Two years after her husband's death, R.J. Taylor, who was an agent on a reservation, finally granted it to her. However, her children's inheritance was a harder struggle. Another relative named Peter was technically the legal guardian of her son's land because it was in another state. And he refused to consent to sell the land. Susan responded by once again, this time she, instead of bombarding the committee, she went straight to bombarding the commissioner of the head of the Indian office. His name was Commissioner Gordon. No, Layup. <laughs> L-E-U-P-P. So she wrote letter after letter after letter talking about how Peter was a drunk and R.J. Taylor, which was the guy that took two years to allot her, her portion, yep. was... A dick. Incompetent and just basically a terrible person. So she's, you know, trash talking the two people that actually deserve it while actually while also making a case for herself to be the best manager of her son's monies. I push these little fuckers out of my hoo-ha and you're telling me I'm not not like I can't make these decisions that some fucker two states over is in charge of them. I don't think so. This time her letters received attention like real quickly. The Indian office actually responded within a week of her original letter. So she probably only got like two letters to them, but she was prepared for a fucking campaign. They like keep getting letters. She's like, shit, shit, shit. Right, right. Write the response faster. Um, So they informed her that, Taylor, the, I don't know what he was, the agent. Yeah. He had been ordered to ignore Peter's objections. And then, so Susan got her, her son's money for that land that was held in South Dakota because they didn't want it. 
Sorry, you know what that kind of reminds me of? Uh, When we were fighting for Jared's disability increase, you just have to keep inundating them with letters from people who have witnessed the person struggling with their disability and who can attest to the fact that they can't work or that the disability makes them unable to work. And you just have to keep going and going and going. And they keep being like, but... And then you're like, letter, 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 letter. And then finally, finally, they're just like, okay. So seriously, anyone going through that... Just keep, keep going. Trying. Keep writing letters. Keep trying. Do not stop because that's what they want you to do. I feel like that is. I feel like it's like, you know, if people put in minimum effort, they're just like, meh, they don't really want it. Oh, I feel like unless you're missing half your brain or all of your limbs or something like that, they reject everyone the first t- the first time, especially if it's only um, an emotional illness like PTSD, because then they could be like, well, is it really that bad? Yeah, mental health. Yeah. Like, well, you look fine. It's like, yeah. yes, it's an invisible illness. It's It sucks. Keep doing it, though. Just, if nothing else, just to piss them off and make right. them do fucking paperwork. So Susan would go on to invest the money that she got for her inheritance and her son's inheritance in rental properties, which she was then able to use the income from her rental properties to support herself and her sons. So oh, she was smart. Her. She, she, she reminds was, me of she your mom. She was very competent. It reminds me of your mom. That is exactly as fuck, mom. Susan. <laughs> Yeah. Um, this was not the end of her fights with the government, but we'll get back to that. Uh, it, it never ends. Right? So, back to TB, because we're still in the midst of TB. So, yeah, the whole time she's over here writing letters to the government, she's also writing letters um, to the Indian office, not only about the stupid land, but to try to persuade them to get help for the, the TB crisis, which is tuberculosis, for those who don't know. Um, that was going on in the Omaha community. Uh, they turned her down because there wasn't enough funding. There wasn't a cure yet available. And they were just kind of like, eh. Is there even a cure now for tuberculosis? I mean, they know kind of what to do now. I was going to say, I don't think the, the mortality rate is as high. Like, but you can... Like, if you get tuberculosis and it's bad enough, you can still just die from it. It's not like they can give you a shot or a pill, right? It's more about prevention because we're a much cleaner society. Especially now that everyone's so conscientious about washing their hands. I mean, you you can take antibiotics now and it'll help. help. I I remember But there's not like a vaccine or anything for TB. But I remember hearing years ago there was a story. This guy uh, contracted tuberculosis and he was going to die. Like, it was, I don't know what the situation was, but he was going to die. And they're like, hey, buddy, you're going to die. Also, don't go anywhere because you're highly contagious. And he's like, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to hop on a plane. Oh. He was very like, I'm dying. I have no fucks to give. But, like, in the most dickish way possible. Yeah, got a bunch of other And so then sick. all of those people had to get TB tests. I don't know if anyone, any of them actually got tuberculosis, but I think he he got fined or rather something for like knowingly endangering other people's lives. Like kind of like if you're, if you have AIDS, if you're HIV positive and you have sex with another person without telling them you can be fined. Well, it's, it's one of those things where that person cannot consent to having sex with you because they don't understand the risks that they might be taking. You know, yeah, so it's like, will yeah, willful endangerment it's like, or something. Um, it's like even there are plenty of states where uh, if you lie about who you are, 
in order to get sex, that can be considered rape yeah. by deception. It's really interesting. Yeah, which I'm like, if you're having a lie to get sex, you should not be having sex. Fuck no. off. So, Susan's over here with T, not with TB. <laughs> I'm like, no! Trying to help her community overcome TB. And so, because there wasn't a cure and she wasn't getting help, she basically just had to go around and advocate for cleanliness Fresh air, the eradication of house flies, which at the time were believed to be major carriers of TB. I don't think they actually are. I hope I not. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they're not. Um, um, and this, this willingness that she had to engage in political action, both medically and non-medically, really started carrying over to other areas of public health. Um, so after her husband's death, she became increasingly active in campaigns against, um, this trust period they had for the Omaha, which was like when someone dies, yeah, it's stuff is held in trust by the government for a certain amount of time and blah, 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 blah. She also became a delegate to the secretary of the interior so that she could protest changes in the supervision of the Omaha people, which is awesome. Good for her. Also, I looked it up, uh, and according to this website, uh, houseflies can transmit TB to humans, but it's it's very rare. Like, it's not, if a housefly lands on you, you probably don't have tuberculosis. Right, because they don't really break your skin. Like, they don't bite, they don't break well, your we skin. we wash our hands and everything often enough, and how often do you, like, lick your elbow when a fly landed on it? Can it's you physically even impo- lick your you elbow? You have to be double-jointed, like, in your shoulder, your elbow. 90 to 99% of the community cannot lick their elbow. Fuck off, we're doing this. Enjoy this, patrons. She's licked the microphone. <laughs> Shut up. It's in the way. It's right there. Okay. I heard a pop. That's my jaw. That was gross. My jaw did is double jointed. Did you actually lick your elbow? I think I did. Here, count it. Let, tell me. All right. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like the tip, but it was close. Yeah, oh, I gr- just the your tip. jaw popping was disgusting, yeah. though. No, That's- I'm. It's funny because uh, I, I I had braces as I a hate, kid. I hate that sound. And uh, the the orthodontist was like, "Oh, your jaw's double jointed," and my mom's like, "Well, that explains why she won't shut the fuck up." And I'm like, "Thanks, mom." <laughs> so yeah, okay. For most people, it is impossible to lick your elbow. I'm not most people. I have a podcast. I can do whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> I guess according to Reddit, there's like a specific way to position yourself to attempt to lick your elbow. My jaw kind of hurts now. Yeah. That was kind of <laughs> gross. I didn't even realize so, it was popping until I guess you pointed it out. It's not as impossible as I had been led to believe. Okay, everyone take a break. Pause for 30 seconds. Try to lick your elbow. I don't care if you're at work. I don't care if you're at the doctor's office. I don't care if you're in fucking church, because if you're listening to this podcast in church, you already don't give a fuck. So listen, if you're in the car with your mom, start trying to lick your elbow now. (laughs) Don't try and do it if you're driving. No, if you're driving, don't. If you're driving, wait. Wait till you're like at a stop sign. Go try to lick your elbow. Wait till you're at a stop sign or something and there's like no one else around. Right. (laughs) Even though Susan was now like, kind of a mem- more up in political places. She was still struggling with the bureaucracy for land allotments, but n- not on behalf of herself and her kids anymore. She was really starting to advocate for other members of her community, you know, because they watched her go through it and they were like, yeah, you're really good at this. You want to help? So she's doing that. She's doctoring, you know, people really trust her and she's, you know, a local leader of her people. And she's, they kind of view her as a defender of their interests. So like, 
you know, people are very much wanting her help. And she would actually go to seek out other Omaha people who wanted to sell their lands and gain control of the money that was owed to them. So she would go and she would help them all partially because she just wanted to. And also because she was, you know, she could translate between English and Omaha. Like there was a lot of reasons, but she actually really liked it. And yeah, she really went out there to help these situations where quite often the Omaha people or the Native American people or the First Nations people, anyone, not just the Omaha, were really taken advantage of in these situations. So through doing this, she became increasingly aware um, of the land fraud that was committed particularly by like a specific like group of men on and around particularly the Omaha reservation which is terrible. So it was like the specific group of dudes who were preying on the Omaha people. Yep. Okay. So Susan really narrowed her focus on this group of men, and it turned out it was three white men and two Omaha men who would defraud people, particularly minors, of their inheritance. I I like to think she she like she's got her board and she's got all the red strings, and they all point to these like what five people, and she's like. Right. I'm she's coming like, what, for you, What do they call bitches. it, a murder board or whatever? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she's like, I'm coming for you. This is happening. Um, I'm going to take you down. So in what's kind of a weird twist and is a little bit sad. No. Uh, is that Susan, who had spent most of her life complaining that the Omaha people were, you know, as civilized or as good as a civilization as, a, uh, as any white man, um, actually ended up writing to the Indian office to say that her people were too incompetent to protect themselves against fraudsters and thus needed the continued guardianship of the federal government. Uh, like, she's doing it from a good place, but it still makes me uncomfortable. Well, it's it's kind of... I'm not, I'm not trying to defend that or anything, but it's tough because they haven't been afforded the same kind of education experience that she has. And that's one of the reasons she's so good at this because she kind of knows how to play to her audience. Right. And she's this great bridge between the Omaha people and then like the white people in charge. And she's seeing that they're so reliant on her and they need her help. And she's like, you guys can't do this yourself. Right. Because no one's letting you or empowering you to do that. Right. So I get what she's trying to say, but yeah, that, that right. sucks. So the next year, she actually would travel to Washington to speak face-to-face with the officials of the Office of Indian Affairs. And she would go on to tell them that though most of the Omaha were perfectly competent of managing their own affairs, the Indian office had stifled the development of business skills and knowledge of the white world among the First Nations people, and thus they had created the incompetence of a minority of Omaha, you know, and they were, she was basically like, this is your own fucking That's what fault. I just said. Yeah, you were 100% Susan, right. honey. Yeah. It, it's funny because they're, as, as desperately as they're trying to assimilate First Nations people, they're also trying to keep them ignorant and subservient. Right. It, it's this weird double-edged sword. It's like, we well, we want you to fit in, but like just like a step below us yeah so there was also besides her fighting for that there was another big thing going on where the government was kind of trying to consolidate the omaha with the winnebago people so it says agency so i don't know if they were just trying to combine like the office of indian affairs into one or if they were trying to merge the nations okay didn't really say but whatever was going on uh susan was very much against the omaha um, doing this consolidation and would write letters and harshly 
and uh, write letters to the Office of Indian Affairs and to the newspaper and would like critically and harshly be like, no, this is why we shouldn't do it. You know, this bureaucracy and what they're trying to do is terrible. And she argued that there was a lot of unnecessary red tape that would be created by this consolidation. And it was nothing but an extra burden to her people. And it was just proof that this government agency that's supposed to be helping them is treating them like children and not like citizens. She would continue working on her community's behalf for the rest of her life. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of it seemed to be in vain as her people lost more and more of their ancestral land and became more or less de- or more dependent on the Office of Indian Affairs, which is really sad. That's well, it's much easier to control them if they're completely uh, under right. your thumb. Right. So Susan suffered from illnesses throughout her life. Like I said, in medical school, remember she ended up taking, well, she took time off, but she also suffered from trouble breathing. Um, And then, yeah, while she was working on the reservation, she had to take time off to recover her health. Um, She developed a chronic pain in her neck, head, and ears. What a nightmare. Those are some of the worst places to have That's why she had to take that year off. Yeah, because she was sick. And then she cared for her mom. Because she's not sleeping, ever. Right. So she became, she recovered from the neck, head, and ear pain i mean like she still kind of had like the chronic pain but it wasn't as like she could go back to normal life but then she became ill again they say ill i say injured because she fell from a horse and um i caught a cold on my way down from the horse no she had significant internal injuries but yeah like for some reason all the like papers i read were like she fell ill i'm like no that is that is injured off horse (laughs) right you wrote it wrong you spelled horse wrong exactly so she had a lot of internal injuries and that was in 1893. So obviously we know she went, you know, she got married, she went back to practicing and she was fine. However, this chronic neck, head and ear thing she had going on um, eventually caused her to go deaf. Susan. Right. And the older she got, the more her health declined. Um. The great thing was she she got to see the hospital built on her reservation because that was in 1913. Um, but she was too frail to be its sole administrator. So they still oh. let her be an administrator, but I think it was more in spirit than anything else. Yeah. By early March of 1915, she was suffering greatly and died of bone cancer later that year. Oh, bone cancer? The next day, there were services held both by the Presbyterian Church as well as the Amethyst Chapter of the Order of the Eastern Star. Um, She is buried in Bancroft Cemetery in Bancroft, Nebraska, near her husband and the rest of her family. In her career, Susan served over 1,300 patients in a 450-square-mile area. Oh, my God. How many... I wonder how exactly that translates into, like, population density. Right. Yeah, because you know? parts of Nebraska aren't very dense, but parts are. But that just, I don't know, with the people being bigger than the square miles, it seems Oh, yeah. Well, like it's because of, of the reservation. Yeah. Um, so, her, her story slash tribute slash, you know, all that fun stuff. Legacy. Legacy. So that hospital that was built on the reservation um, ended up becoming a community center. 
and is named after Susan. It was declared a national landmark in 1993, um, and it was also named as one of the 11 most endangered places of 2018 by the National Trust because it's not being, like, upkept or anything. God damn it, people! So there is work underway to raise funds to restore it. Where do I donate? Yeah, right. Susan, hospital, money now. I didn't get anything that I thought I would. Um, On June 17th, on the 152nd anniversary of her birth, Google released a Google Doodle. I didn't look her, it up. I can so, go look it up. No, no, no. I'm sorry, but what is her full name? Susan LaFleche? LaFleche. Uh, F-L-E-S-C-H-E. And then I wonder if she, I bet she took her husband's last name, which is... Yeah, Picot. Picotti. 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 A million different ways that we we're saying it wrong. We're, we're, we're like Benedict Cumberbatch. Every way we say it is the wrong way. We will never even accidentally say the correct way. Oh, yeah. It's a center now. That's right. Yeah, right there. Help us preserve Nebraska history. Honoring America's first Native American physician. Wow, that wasn't even in my notes. Okay. So apparently she was the first Native American physician, um, but they want to restore her 1913 hospital, create a community center and wellness clinic for the Omaha tribe and residents of the Walt Hill area. So now that I'm seeing her picture, I almost covered her. Really? Yeah. Like, I'm like, I don't know, like, First Nations physician, like, sounds familiar, but seeing her picture, I'm like, oh, yeah, I've definitely seen her. But, yeah, it looks like you can donate at my.lcf.org forward slash L-A-F-L-E-S-C-H-E. You can also donate at drsusancenter.org. That might be a better one. (laughs) I know this is the Lincoln Community Foundation. Yeah, Memorial Hospital Fund Donation Forum. That's cool. Um, so there's that going on. And then in 2018, um, a bust of Susan was dedicated at the Martin Luther King Jr. Transportation Center in Sioux City. And in 2019, a statue of her was dedicated as part of the Hampton University's Legacy Park. So remember, that's where she went to school. Yeah. So Go that was Hampton. that was in 2019. So good, good job. So and then obviously... Apparently, according to her webpage for her hospital, it said she was the first Native American doctor, but none of my none of my things mentioned that. I would, I mean, probably educate in like the European sense. Yeah, maybe because, like you well, said yeah, before, do- true doctor. I'm sure. Yeah, with a degree. Yeah, you know, not true isn't even quite. But yeah, right, if you but- actually like think about First Nations people, a lot of their healers were women. Yeah. Like, a lot of their shaman, like, I think they had both genders of shamans, but, like, if you think of, like, tr- the traditional portrayal, which I guess ours might not be correct, but a lot of times it's women. Yeah. Because we're good at healing. We have magic hands. All right. That is Susan. Man, what a great story. Yeah, and it was like, a little bit long. But. No, it was, it was interesting, too, because it's another uh, lens through which to examine that period in time, and particularly what First Nations people were going through. 
And like, Sounds like, like I said, I had never heard of the whole like assimilation, those creepy little schools until I covered Zakala Shah. And actually I went to uh, an exhibit at the Denver Historical Society or Center and it was all about the indigenous peoples oh, really? of Colorado. Cool. And there was a whole section where they were talking about those creepy fucking schools. And there was like a little booklet that went in more detail. I'm like, I'm reading this whole thing. And it was right. a lot of it's it was terrible. stuff I already knew. But one of the things um, uh, a bunch of children had been sent to a school in New Mexico. And within the first year, like 11 of them died because, you know, they were, they were being abused and they were dying and they weren't being well taken care of. Like there's so much abuse going on in those places. And so then the, the families of these children campaigned to have like a school on the reservation. So they could actually like teach their own kids. Well, and make sure their kids weren't dying. (laughs) Like I want my kid to come home at night. So I know if they're being murdered, you know, all right. Well, uh, today I'm going to be whining about Mahendra Dada. And this is going to be a bit of a tough pronunciation story for me. Oh, that Google tool is really sweet. And there's the hospital. Yeah, so it has like a brick house on one side and then her with her physician's bag and then teepees, which is semi-offensive. Well, it, And then the hospital. It depends because nomadic tribes did use them. That's true. Um, not every tribe was nomadic though. Well, and at this point they were on a reservation. So yeah. I don't know enough about the Omaha people to, it may not be offensive. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, today I'm covering, I'm whining about Mahendra Dada. Uh, and this is a shorty, but I thought it was really interesting because this whole story dives into how a woman's legacy is remembered and how their gender or their, uh, uh, origins can influence that. That's okay. Mine took like an hour. That's all right. Hey, I'm, I'm glad we're evening out with me having a short one more. No. Cause I, I poured, I had like half a glass. I pour another half a glass and so I'm good. All right. So Mahendra Dada was born. Gunapriya Dharmapanti, uh, sometime around 961 AD. So we're going way, way back. back. Uh, she was Javanese. She was a Javanese princess, part of the Isyana dynasty, who ruled over the Middang kingdom on the Isle of Java. I really want to make a coffee joke. I'm not going. I to, know the I whole time to. I was doing this research. I'm like, I just want coffee. I actually, I almost texted you being like, if I go to Steam, what would you want? But then I was like, no, I should just like, because totally that's in the like, opposite direction. I got to come back. And- I know I went into, <laughs> I went into the office the other day and I, I had my Steam mug from my home coffee and I was like, man, if Steam wasn't so far out of the way, I would have stopped and got coffee. Yeah. Oh, did I tell you what, what Jared's done a couple of days, like in the past couple of weeks? Uh, he's brought me coffee. Aww. So every morning he goes and gets his coffee and he like. Does he, go, does he walk to Steam? No, no, oh. no, 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 that, I mean, that'd be fucking cool. But no, he goes to like the, the gas station nearby. And so he knows like all the people who work there know him. And now they know me because I go in with him on weekends. That's funny. And they're super nice. But he goes and gets his coffee. And lately he's been picking me up a cup, Aww. you know, like before I go to work and I take it in with me. Well, there have been a few mornings where I've left before he's gotten up. And so like, he'll just show up in the office being like, I have you coffee. And I'm like, oh, oh my adorable. God, how bad do you want me to suck your dick? because <laughs> i will now <laughs> he just knows you know what a good partner keeps you caffeinated it's remember true. this 
But yeah, I'm like caffeinated it, in the morning, wind at night. Yeah, it's funny because my the the owner was in one day when he brought coffees. Like, oh, so what'd you do? <laughs> like, exactly. what are you making up? I was just saying, what 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 is it that you suck his D and then he brings you coffee, or he brings you coffee because he wants you to suck his D? I think you know, it's it that. could go either way. No, because I I I don't render affection before I get mine. Yeah, right. You're like, like, no, you have to do. That this is I'm a good thing. negotiator. I do, I do something nice for you, so you do something nice for me, yeah. and then I'll do something nice for you. Exactly. Again. It just that that's a relationship. It just goes back and forth. So, during this time, Indonesia was comprised of many small kingdoms that spanned across its seventeen thousand islands. I had no idea Jesus. there were. Okay, I want you to throw up a map of Indonesia. That's a fuck ton of islands. I didn't know it was 17,000, apparently. Like, I, I knew it was a bunch of little islands. I didn't know how many. Like, I wonder that's insane. if any of them have sunk into the ocean. I don't know. I mean, that's a thing. That's horrifying. Uh, but for the purposes of our story today, we're going to focus on the islands of Java and Bali, which should sound pretty familiar to most everyone. Bali does. I don't think yeah. I've ever heard of Java You before. haven't? I love it because it sounds like coffee. Yeah, I guess they have a bunch of, like, little... yeah. It's it's insane, and it just goes all the way around. It's like a little. Smirk. And then I mean, they they do have like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like large yeah. islands. So, Mahendradatta's kingdom of Midang, located on Java, was primarily Hindu and had been a thriving kingdom. They're doing great. They're slaying. They're stellar. However, the island of Bali was an up-and-comer, and Java's power was beginning to wane. So Java's, like, been, you know, the big kid on the block for a while, but now Bali's, like, finally coming into its own and being like, what's up? We got some swagger here. So, um... To solidify an alliance between Java and Bali, Mahendradatta was betrothed to Udayana Warmadewa. I'm just tr- I'm trying here, yeah, guys. We're good. Confidence. Um, so he was a Balinese prince, and upon the marriage, she moved to Bali and assumed the name Mahendradatta. Because remember, she was uh, Gunapriya Dharmapanti. Yep. So this this was like her, and I don't know if Mahendradatta. Um, is more of a Balinese name or what the deal was, but it was, it was symbolic of her new role as a princess or queen. I just want to say that apparently Java has the largest cluster of inhabitants. Oh, like like, even today they have 130 million million inhabitants on Java, which is 60% of the country's population. Wow. We were just talking about uh, population densities two seconds ago. Yeah. Love how that comes back. Um, now, Mahendra Dada wasn't just going to chill in the palace and like, I don't know, eat grapes or olives or no, whatever. She's like, I want to get shit done. Yes. So soon after marrying Udiana, she took the reins, likely serving as the queen regent, and began to bring Javanese culture to Bali, including Hinduism. You know how people get... With religion, it's very sensitive. Yeah, you have to like, you gotta gotta wean them on. To yeah, it. it's you know, and, and people people don't like change. We don't like change. You know, the Irish came and were like, Eah! the Italians came and were like, Eah! and now like, and then it's we bring white people, we bring and, people over, and we're still like, Eah! God damn it. Okay, I kid you not. I was a little kid 
learning about like slavery in the Civil War, I was like, how can we hate them this much? We literally brought them here. Right. What the, what the fuck? <laughs> okay. That's not what this story is about. No, this is about a princess being a badass. We're moving on. So, um, she conceived a son, Yay. Erlanga, uh, who would later become a revered hero in Bali, though his parentage is a little dubious. I mean, we know it's at least hers. Yeah. Yeah. Like his. This is the one thing you can never. As long as you know the woman was pregnant and had a baby, you can never question who the Have mother was. Have you ever seen those YouTube questions where it's like, I'm a woman and pregnant. How do I know the baby's mine? Please. That's sad. But she she had her longa and she had two more sons. I didn't get super into him because there was all this like rumors about like. She produced an heir. That's is, all that matters. Who is the daddy? I don't care. He's super dead now. I don't care. Anyway. Right. Mahendra Dahl's position of power and foreign influence made her a revered and feared figure, depending on who you asked. Her reign was not easy, though. It's likely that she was frequently at odds with the royal court and her husband, who may have resented the ballsy foreign princess who was importing her own culture. Right. Because she prob- came in and he's she's probably like, like, stick to your house, Whiffery. And she's like, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, what, 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 what are you doing? I'm ruling. You don't have a broom, though. I don't. I don't understand how you could be doing something without a broom. My palace is dirty. She's <laughs> like cleaning your fucking self, right? But you know, obviously, she's ruffling Actually, some feathers. She's, she's probably like, we have maids for this. <laughs> <laughs> but she's coming in as a foreign princess. She's ruffling feathers. She's, you know, influencing the culture. Yeah. She's not doing her job by just like sitting back and existing yeah. as the connection to Java. So. Uh, Mahendra Dada was also devoted to the Hindu goddess Durga. And we're going to get into Durga because she's a badass. So Durga, which means impassable or invincible, Ooh, I like that. Uh, is a feminine figure who has eight or ten arms, depending on, you know, the iteration, each holding a different weapon. She doesn't need oh, pockets. Yeah, I've seen I've seen pictures. Yeah, of her she before. doesn't need pockets. She's got eight to ten fucking arms. And then she probably does have pockets because she's amazing. Fuck yeah. So it's said that she was created to defeat the bull demon. Mahisha Shura, uh, who was wreaking havoc upon the innocent. So he could only be defeated by a woman thanks to a deal he made with another god. I'm not going to get super into it. And he wasn't too worried because he thought women were weak. So basically, he wanted right. to be immortal. And the god who was making the deal with him was like, no, everything must end. He's like, okay, well, women. the only way I want to die is if I get killed by a woman because they're a bunch of pussies. And the god's like... Cool, I guess. And it reminds me of Lord of the Rings where she stabs the one guy in the face and he goes, I cannot be defeated by a mortal man. And she rips off her helmet and she's oh, like, yeah. I am no man. <laughs> yeah, the blonde chick. Yep. And oh, I'm like, she that was is cool. the best line. She needed more attention from the fandom, in my opinion. I am she was no like, man. she was so fucking cool. So anyway, Durga was created by the gods to stop Mahisura's uh, reign of terror, and they each gave her one of their weapons to hold in her eight to ten arms. And as a bonus, she was gifted a lion to ride in a battle. Clearly ancient people do not know how to draw a lion. Well, because, like a lot of the pictures show a tiger. Oh, no, there's a lion. It, yeah, it, she's depicted with tigers a lot. 
it's said a lion, some kind of big, fearsome cat. Here's the thing. It was crafted by a bunch of magical gods. Right. So they can make it whatever the hell they want. And call it, it whatever the It can look like a tiger. They, they can say it's a lion because they got eight to ten arms to rip your ass to pieces. It's a liger. It's a liger. First oh, my God. Oh, they didn't have cool. words for it yet. What'd you find? It's a really a neat picture. You should throw it up. I will. I have to find, like, which one it is, though. Like, yeah, she's had, a like, badass. labels, and I, I hate when they take you to a site, and then the thing you're looking for isn't even on that site. Yeah. Okay, so. Uh, so, first of all, I love that this bull is like, women are pussies, and she's like, I'm going to ride a pussy into battle, damn it. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> so, long story short, Durga made Mahishasura into Rocky Mountain Oysters. Bull demon and she ate his testicles. I don't know if she did, but Rocky Mountain oysters. Look it up. Hashtag herstory headcanon. Herstory headcanon. Rocky Mountain oysters. This is actually doubles as the origin tale for Rocky Mountain oysters. So because of this, Durga is associated with strength, protection, and destruction. She's kind of like all the cool stuff. Yeah. So it's easy to see why Mahendra Dada was so devoted to her. She's fucking cool as shit. Any multi-armed, weapon-wielding woman who rides a cat is my hero. So... Unfortunately, though, it was this devotion which spurred on rumors against Mahendradatta. So devotees of Durga were often associated with sacrifice and witchcraft. So despite Mahendradatta being a competent, powerful, and successful ruler, her most enduring legacy is as a legendary evil, Rangda. So according to Balinese folklore, Rangda, which means widow, Used to be the queen of Bali, but was exiled for practicing witchcraft. Jeez. Being super pissed, the evil witch began to terrorize Bali with famine, floods, plagues, and other such disasters. In a super weird twist, Rangda was eventually defeated by a holy hero sent by Erlanga, who was Mahendradatta's son. Yeah. That's interesting. So even like her real son gets wrapped into this legend as the one who kills her like avatar in this legend. Yeah, it's very odd. So the legend of Rangda grew into a good versus evil story of Rangda being defeated by a divine lion creature named Varong. So it's possible that this legend reveals the resentment of a powerful foreign queen because basically they took her, turned her into this like evil pissy witch and then had her defeated by her own son and then her goddess's mount. Yeah, like very odd. Very, very interesting. Uh, So in the legend, obviously we see hallmarks of Mahendradatta's life, her religion, her son, even Barang is similar to the lion that Durga rode into battle. Rangda is a threat to Bali, which is likely how Mahendradatta was viewed because she's changing the culture. She's in a hugely powerful position. I couldn't find a ton of information about her husband. We talked about religion and touching religion is, it's a touchy subject. Yeah, but I couldn't find a ton about her husband, so it really seems like she was the one in charge, and people are like, whoa. I don't know what the fuck he was doing. Yeah, like, anyway. Mahendradatta died around sometime around uh, 1011 AD and was entombed in a temple in Bali, which includes statues of Hindu deities, naturally including Durga. Yes, girl. 
Uh, but once Mahendradatta died, the legend of her evil alter ego, Rangda, really took off since she was not there to defend herself. So the powerful queen in life became the embodiment of evil Ugh. and death. And I don't have a legacy because it's really just that legend of Rangda that is her legacy. And so it's kind of picking apart the truth of like, who was she really? Where did this legend come from? And there are still uh, like performances of the battle between Rangda and Barong. And actually, if you Google Rangda, R-A-N-G-D-A, it is a horrifying fucking image. Like she's got insane fangs and big crazy eyes and it's like it's genuinely frightening to me i'm like no i don't like this make it go away yeah bulging red eyes that tongue dough yeah it's insane that th- throw up a picture for the video but it's gross it's just creepy i don't, I don't okay know that that's is. just like furry fan fiction art cool, don't though. do that but yeah, I mean, that is my quickie about Mahendra Dada, the uh, Javanese princess turned Balinese queen turned embodiment of evil and death. I was just to say, like, Rangda has, like, um, Freddy fingers. Yeah, she's got uh, long claws. Yeah. Also, I looked up some facts about um, Indonesia. Oh, yeah? They have 17,508 islands. Only about 6,000 are inhabited. Okay. (laughs) Can you imagine just, like, going to one of the rando islands to just, like, chill? Like, I need some space. I'm going to go to one of those, like, you know, 12,000 uninhabited ones. We're fine. That's it. Yeah, and uh, I thought this was interesting because I don't think we've covered anyone from Indonesia yet. And to hear about royalty and like this story is still popular in Indonesian culture and hearing about like the truth behind it, I thought was interesting. So it's interesting. So even though Java has the highest um, population, it's it's the uh, fifth largest uh, island in Indonesia. What's the largest? I don't know. That's what I was trying to look up and it. We should go visit. So the five main islands in Indonesia are Sumatra, Java, Borneo, Sulawesi, and New Guinea. Those are like the five largest islands. Nice. I have um, heard of all those places. <laughs> Borneo is the largest. It is actually the third largest island in the world. Wow. And the largest in Asia. Is the first Australia? I would assume so. (laughs) Or is Australia so... Actually, it might be Greenland. I was going to say, is Australia so big that they don't even call it an island anymore? You're right. Greenland's pretty damn big. It just doesn't look big on the map. Yeah, it's Greenland. Oh, look at us being smart. And by us, I mean Kelly. Cool. So, Kelly, what are you thankful for? What am I? The end of the week? No, (laughs) seriously, this week was, it was a lot. That's what I'm gonna go with. Like, um, sorry, I got distracted because now that one said something about Kelly's island hopping and trying to figure out which one's the biggest. She's a size queen. Don't worry about it. So I guess it depends on what you consider Australia. That's kind of what it goes by. 
if you consider like Australia like a continental landmass, then it's not considered an See, island. See, and that's what I'm saying. We we like to be nitpicky because technically, wouldn't all of North America be an island? Uh, North and South America. Yeah, attached. and um, the continent yeah. of Africa. So, like, because Australia is a continent, it takes it out, and then Greenland is. The Australia has been disqualified. Sorry, um, Australia. But yeah, it was just, it was a long week. Classes were long and boring. <laughs> um, like we had like no work this week, so it was like super slow. Like this week took forever. So I'm thankful it's over. It's funny because I feel like either extreme with work sucks. Having nothing to do sucks. Having too much to do sucks. sucks. And I was at the other end of the spectrum where I was just like, go, 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 like sprinting through my week. So I'm excited the week is over because I can finally exhale. Um, I'm thankful that I'm fully vaccinated now. Yay. That feels really good to just get that done. Actually, Facebook like popped up a thing where it's like, fine, oh, vaccination yeah. appointments. I'm like, hide. I don't need this. Yeah. I'm done. Mine I did my thing. all the time and I'm like, I've been vaccinated since like right before my birthday. I wish there was something that you could click where you're like, I good. Right. Yeah, I I'm had to good. send my little vaccination card into my doctor. Oh, shit. Do you have to do that? Because then they put it on your medical record. Oh. So I just took a picture of it because you can send pictures through the mail oh, portal. I should probably, like, read the big pile of papers they gave me. I just went in and got shot. Well, <laughs> yeah, you might want to read it because sometimes they'll send it to your medical provider, like, if they have it on file. But, yeah. like, because I went, you know, just literally, I mean, I guess they were still, like, a pharmacy there's still a pharmacy but you know yeah i just sent it so i just portaled it to my doctor and was like here's my vaccination card she's like cool i might like frame mine like that's that's historic right you know? i know i'm definitely like gonna keep mine somewhere yeah. plus if you eventually need them to travel i mean hopefully oh yeah but. yeah but yeah, I'm I'm thankful I'm fully vaccinated and I'm thankful the week is over. And uh also I'm I'm thankful I've been struggling at work recently. Um I won't go into detail, but basically my bosses and the rest of the team have been hugely supportive really it's kind and of reassuring. Like everyone's got your back. Yeah, and yeah. Nice. And it's it's one of those things like I've been struggling and like I'm trying to do my best. I feel like I'm failing. They're like, no, no, no. It's not you or like, you know, just, just that, that reassurance. And, uh, you know, we're, I I work for a small business. COVID has been really hard on us, but one of the reasons I really enjoy where I work and one of the reasons I'm still there to be quite honest, because my job gets very stressful is because management gives a shit about me. Right. You're not just a number. They're very understanding. They're very accommodating, like, especially, uh, you know, with Jared, like if he's having a rough time and I got to hit the eject button on, we're like, Hey, I got to go deal with a, a situation. It's like, yeah, you go. That's and nice. so that's been a, a really great source of support for me. Well, it's nice that you work in a place that you feel comfortable telling them like, Hey, my partner has these issues. So that might mean I have to go. Yeah. Yeah, you exactly. Know? So I'm also, uh, should I had something? I totally forgot. Oh yeah. I am thankful for my antidepressants because the the issues I've been struggling with at work have actually been a lot easier to manage because when I encounter stress, my first thought is no longer, God, I wish I was dead. It's right. more like, 
bring it on or we're all like, gonna oh, die is, someday right? let's do that you know or it's like oh this is annoying but i can handle it yeah exactly because i and i kind of didn't realize how on how unhealthy your thoughts were unhealthy and how extreme they were until it wasn't like my automatic go-to oh, of yeah. like i remember being god there. i wish i was dead I, I, I would got, rather be dead than deal with this. And that's not okay. Uh, and I got so used to it right. that I stopped acknowledging it as a warning sign. But now that I'm on antidepressants, those thoughts have been curved way down. That's and so that's nice. really great. And yeah. I'm so thankful. Well, and it's like I was telling you I want to get a new therapist. And so I like told my like primary that because I, I need to know like who's covered by my insurance. And they were like, well, you can see like a social worker to do that. And I'm like, I already have a diagnosis. I'm already on medication. I've been seeing a different, you know, counselor. And I just want to see a different one. Like, why do I need to go see a social worker? Like, I was super fucking annoyed. I'm like, you know, if I didn't have a diagnosis and this was my first time coming in about mental health, I understand that. But it's not. Just give me a fucking list. Well, and it's one of those things, too, where uh, oftentimes we're put in positions where we have to advocate ourselves for our health. So when I was having my hip issues, I was getting weird diagnoses. I was being told to take everything from Tylenol to opiates. I had a, I told a doctor, I'm like, I don't really want to take opiates. Yeah, no, they're highly addictive. I worry about getting addicted. And she goes, well, do you think you'll get addicted? I'm like, does fucking anyone? And I had to really fight to get them to take a closer look. And one MRI later, they're like, oh, your hips are jacked the fuck up, girl. And we know exactly how to do it. And now my quality of life is a billion times better. But yeah, sometimes you, if you know what, like, you know your body, you know what your problems are, don't be afraid to raise a stink about it. And unfortunately, there are plenty of people who raise a stink for no goddamn reason because they just suck. You know if you're doing that or not. Yeah, you know if you're doing that or not. We trust you because you're amazing. Well, and like they responded really nicely and they were just like, oh, you know, seeing a social worker can help like narrow down who you should see and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. And they're just like, you know, we'll we'll talk about it at your primary visit because I need to go see my primary anyways. But I was still just like, I just want a list. Like I I can just give me a list of like the clinics that are covered and I will go and do the research on like who works there and what their specialties are on my own. I, and I totally get that because they, they want to figure out like, okay, well maybe you've tried cognitive behavioral therapy in the past and maybe something else would be a better fit. Um, but at the same time, the fewer visits that you have to go to and the more steps you can eliminate from the whole process. The better I will feel. Yeah, because then you got to pay for those visits. Insurance, a bitch. We literally just talked about that. Well, it's like I know the reason Mayo, I think, does it, especially for like the first time mental health people is because like if if it's like a short term situational problem, that'll be like five or six sessions. They'll treat you at Mayo Clinic. If it's a long term problem, they send you somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I was like, I already have a diagnosis. We know this isn't a short-term problem. Like, yep. just give me the fucking list. Yep. I uh, I am so disappointed because I found a therapist at a, another clinic in town. And they're not um, covered by your insurance? Well, my insurance, long story short, yes, but no. Uh, so I had to stop seeing them and they were one of the favorite people I ever saw. And then the other person I saw through beyond the yellow ribbon, which is a support, uh, nonprofit for, uh, partners and family members of people in the service. 
Um, cause it's beyond the yellow ribbon. Yeah, the yellow ribbon sense. is the soldier and beyond is everyone else affected by it. But I was able to get some free therapy uh, nice. from a local provider through them. And the therapist I saw who, you know, yep. uh, she, she's fantastic. And she's no longer working where I was going. Oh, really? I, I don't think that. she, I think she got a new job. I think you told me she got a new job. I thought you worked at the same place. Oh, I don't know. Maybe not. But she was awesome. So I'm like, can I just see you people for the rest of my life? Because you are fake. And then we. That's what I told my NP. I'm like, you're never allowed to leave because I don't want to change doctors. Right. Because you're fantastic. Here's the thing, though. Since I don't see them professionally, we can have coffee and just be friends and I can bitch about my problems for free. (laughs) I should email email them and be like, coffee date question mark? (laughs) My treat question mark? Right. Please. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. If you want to see all this craziness and our cute little jammy jams, you can subscribe to our Patreon for only $1 a month. As little as $1 a month gets $1. you access to all the bonus content. We will also be recording another Herstory Happenings, which is a total bonus episode that no one but patrons gets access to. It will be my sweet, sweet melodic voice telling you some story. Yes, some story. It'll be a secret. It's historically awesome. Also, like us on Facebook at Whiny About Her Street, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com, and our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you, like whether it's stories or just like telling us how awesome we are or ideas for women, anything. We would love to get an email. Uh, we also have merch, which you can access on our website or through Teespring. Uh, we have cool designs and more stuff is coming out. And then our Patreon, which we already mentioned. Yeah, but we're going to mention it again. Also, rate us five stars wherever you listen. It really helps us. It costs you nothing, and it gives us all the warm fuzzies. All of them. We love reading your reviews. Like when I have a bad day, that's what I do. And I'm like, oh my God, people love me. Yes. Also send us videos of your children responding to how much we swear. Or of you and your children trying to lick your elbows. Oh my God. Yes. Send us pictures of you guys trying to lick your elbows. We'll send you, like, even if you're not a patron, we'll send you some stickers or swag if you can do it. 100%. Just send us the video of you licking your elbow. And your mailing address, and we will send you coasters and stickers and swag and a lovely handwritten note. Yeah, because you deserve it if you can lick your elbow. Oh, fuck yeah. I I mean, look at me. I deserve it. I'm not even going to try. I know I can. If we get three elbow licking videos, we will release a bonus video of Kelly trying to lick her (sighs) elbow. Okay, deal. Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.